This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Coming up on today's show, we'll continue talking about 2022 year in review with Alberta party leader Barry Morishita. And what a year in politics. We'll speak with Professor Lisa Young, get her take on the year that was, and healthcare with Dr. Shazma Mithani, energy with Dave Yeager. Earlier this week, we spoke with both the Premier and the Leader of the Opposition, getting their take on yet another very interesting year in politics in the province of Alberta. Really and truly in this province, when it comes to politics, uh, there seems to never be a dull moment. There's always something going on. Uh, it, it's ramped up this year, though, no question. Today, we're going to get the perspective of a party that is desperately hoping to make some big gains next spring. We all know we're going to have an election in May. Um, the Alberta party led by Barry Morishita, I have to think, I have no doubt, is looking to see some, some major gains made in May. So let's chat with Barry Morishita, the leader of the Alberta party. Uh, Barry, thanks for being here today. I appreciate your time. Oh, thank you, Shay. Appreciate it as well. So 2022, uh, yet another year that obviously is going to go down as a wild one in Alberta politics. We had one premier ousted, another one sworn in. We had a key by-election. We've got a sovereign. I mean, so many things. How would you sum up 2022 in the year politics in Alberta? Uh, you know, I, I think all the superlatives have been used at least at one time, <laughs> probably a hundred times. And it certainly has been crazy. It's been unpredictable. Uh, but you know what? In in kind of the chaos, I think there's an opportunity for the Alberta party to uh, move forward. I, it, it just shows that people are unsatisfied. They're looking for something. I think uh, there's no question that there's a lot of people wondering where this is all going to shake out at the end of the day. Um one of the uh, one of the issues that you were involved in directly personally was the by election that was held in your riding for the premier to to gain a seat in the legislature. I know we've talked before, and you were a little disappointed in the outcome. Um, in terms of what led to that moment and what you were hoping for, uh, your party's performance in twenty twenty two. How do you feel about it? Well, you know, you never seem to get ever get enough done. Uh, that's for sure. But I, you know, I think I, I feel pretty good about where we are and how we're set up to go into 2023. And, you know, everything was gearing towards the election in uh, May. And then the by-election came up and, you know, we tested us and uh, we certainly learned a lot from that. And, you know, we did, uh, we did a lot better than we did in the 2019 election. Um, uh, we raised a bunch of money in a month that we, we uh, saw that could happen. So we're pretty happy about that. So there were some good things that came out of it, but, you know, we're going to apply that same uh, ethic and fix those mistakes and uh, work really hard in May uh, and elect some uh, Alberta Party MLAs. Any insight as to why maybe you didn't get the result that you wanted? Any of the barriers that your party faces that you can work on heading into May? Yeah, you know, I think we're stuck with the same same um, kind of positioning all the time. You know, we, 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 get blamed, we get blamed by NDP 
supporters that if we, uh, you know, we're splitting the vote, that'll yep. let the UCP yep. win. And then we have UCP supporters that say, well, we're splitting the vote, you're going to let the NDP win. And the fact is, is that that kind of becomes the pre, the dominant conversation. Be afraid of the NDP. You know, they're going to ruin Alberta. Be afraid of the UCP. They've all, they're ruining Alberta. And so there's not really a good discussion about what people want, about what they're looking for, about who actually reflects their values. And that's, that's our, uh, you know, we broke through a bit more. Like I said, we did better in the by-election, so I think some people picked up on that message. But, uh, you know, our job is to show Albertans and that there is a, you know, a fiscally conservative, socially progressive party that um, that isn't afraid of taking ideas from wherever, good ideas from wherever they come, because that reflects what they want. And we just, that's our that's our goal. We're going to drive people to uh, vote for something and that the Alberta party hears with great candidates that, that's something they can be proud to vote for. Um, heading into the election, I think, like you say, I think you're absolutely right. It's the, it's the worry. They're not voting for something so much as they're voting against something, right? I don't want to quote unquote waste my vote and open the door for, be it the NDP or the UCP to get in, depending on how they feel. Um, you take a look at the latest polling, that leaves you at about four or five percent provincially, although a lot of people say that they don't feel they belong in either party. Um, with, with polling that low, just five months away, you need to be seen as viable. Um, how do you counter that perception, you know, at, at, at 5% that, well, it, there's really no chance for the Alberta party to actually not just do exactly what I'm afraid they, they'll end up doing? Uh, you know, that's a great, that's a great uh, question. But you said also that people know they don't really belong here. They're voting there because they don't want that. Yeah, and sure. Uh, we just, you know, we have, um, we're, we're, we're grabbing great candidates, people that reflect their communities. And if people want to return to kind of the essence of Alberta, which, you know, I think really was built when Peter Lougheed was the premier. And I know a lot of people try to point to that, but but history proves that's what it was. Uh, people felt represented. They felt like part of the process. Right now, they feel isolated, frustrated, not listened to. The Alberta Party does that differently. Just, you know, that message, we just have to keep hammering it away. And every meeting, doors, and uh, one at a time, and with candidates that are articulate and committed and... Uh, I want to be MLAs for the right reason. There's, there's no secret. It's just hard work. And, you know, a lot of parties in Alberta have, uh, have risen, started from zero and, and risen up to, to become forces. And, you know, with the way the electorate is, when you look at the polling even, uh, you can see that if um, the Alberta party is able to provide some strength in some areas and have some great opportunities, it could be a minority uh, government ahead. And the Alberta party could be the only possibility to keep either of uh, – the um, first place winners in check uh, going forward, because I think that's really what people are worried about, that kind of unbridled uh, ability to make rules and changes that nobody wants. So the Alberta Party could be the one to stop that and keep that in check for everybody. Yeah, could could end up in, you know holding the balance of power for sure. It's possible. It would be a major leap forward. You're starting from zero, as you said, not a seat in the legislature. What is a reasonable expectation? I know you guys map this out. You plan it. How many seats do you think you need to win um, going forward in May? Uh, sort of what, what's the benchmark you're looking at? You know, I, I think a presence in the legislature, you know, we're, we're targeting, uh, you know, would be good to have uh, five to ten seats. We think there's some opportunities there uh, across the province in that with the right candidates and, and, a, and a good plan, and we have a good plan. 
So, you know, if we have a presence in the legislature, that will mean everything changes. I mean, when Greg Clark was uh, in the legislature, at least overall, we had a better profile, and that led to a better vote count in 2019, although uh, we didn't have the the seat coming out of 2019, which was interesting. So, you know, we have to be a little bit more strategic maybe about our resources and where we spend uh, more of our time going into 2023. But um, uh, but any seats in the legislature will be a gain, and that will set us up uh, to increase that profile and prove to Albertans that uh, we're worth voting for in the subsequent elections as well. Uh, some some big issues facing the province. We've got inflation, we've got health care, things like that. Uh, but like it or not, it we're, we're all focused on relationships with Ottawa and the Sovereignty Act, and I think that's going to be the pivotal component of this campaign. Where does the Alberta Party stand on Alberta-Ottawa relations and, um, more specifically, the Sovereignty Act? Well, so the Sovereignty Act, we've come out and said it uh, a couple of times uh, here that it, it doesn't make sense. The The Constitution is uh, is the safeguard properly used and properly applied. We can always protect Alberta's interests. That's what the Constitution is for. Um, and, uh, you know, with all due respect to the Premier, we do have a national government that we have to deal with. We have other Premiers in the Federation that we should be working with to build an Alberta, to uh, prove and and uh, build those relationships to the point where Alberta has a dominant place at the table. We used to have that because we built good relationships. Um, there's no doubt about it that uh, we're in a situation now where the federal party uh, in power uh, certainly um, makes political statements and does political things in order to, again, do the same thing that's happening with the leadership here, make statements that get them into power. They don't care about Alberta, and we do have to push back. We have to push back hard, and we have to show them that we're not going to stand by while, uh, you know, Alberta is detrimentally affected by by not not very thoughtful uh, policies. On the other hand, to just stand there and say we're going to um, uh, impose uh, rules on municipalities and local police forces to potentially ignore laws, that we're going to um, put in powers and then take them away and then leave something behind, you know, that doesn't actually provide any value for Alberta. Let's let's fix Alberta. There's lots of things we need to do here to to allow us to lead. That should be our primary source of uh, pride and power and authority and respect. Let's start there. Um, we don't have to make statements that mean nothing in order for that to happen. And the Alberta Party would be a far more consultative, uh, far more um, logic and uh, principle-oriented approach to all of these issues. Uh, Barry, thanks so much for being with us uh, here today. Uh, I appreciate your time, sir. No, thank you, Shay. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, too. That's Barry Morishita, who is leader of the Alberta Party. And we'll see. I mean, we've talked about this so many times, and every time we do, I get texts from you and calls from you saying, you know what, I, th- I really think that might be where I belong. But we don't vote that way, do we? And the polling shows we're not going to. Um, in January, just think back, you know, as we take a look back at 2022, uh, a year ago, not even a year ago, in January, uh, Jason Kenney, of course, was Premier of the province. Uh, under siege, though, the knives were out around the caucus table. They had been for quite a while. You go back to the year before that, and we had the... Uh, 
everybody taking off to Hawaii problem, um, and, and, and COVID was raging and there was all kind of things going on. So he was under duress. No two ways about that. Uh, his days were numbered, as we now know, right? We saw how it shakes out at the end of the day. Beginning of the end, if you go back to it, was May 18th. Um, he faced the leadership review on May 18th and he got the majority. Slim. Yes, it was 51.4%, I think his majority was at that time. He decided that wasn't enough, and the rest, as they say, is history. You remember what happened. He hung around. The long goodbye, it was called. He didn't actually leave office until very recently, um, but he did announce that he'd stepped down, and the party then said, okay, we're going to have a leadership review. Now, if you think back to the beginning of that process, when it all started, that leadership review um, was, I don't think, I don't think um, Danielle necessarily would have been considered to be the favorite at that time. But lo and behold, here we are now. So let's get a breakdown on where we have been over the past year with Dr. Lisa Young, who is a professor of political science at the University of Calgary. Dr. Young, are you there? See, Sarah, it's not me. I don't know what I did. What did you do? Okay, I'm perfect. I've got a weird, like, no entry symbol on Dr. Young's line. Dr. Young, are you there? I am. Got you now. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, no problem. Let's go back. I mean, not even a year. If you think about what it, what 2022 has been like, it's absolutely <laughs> frenetic. But let's go back. A year ago, January, we're, we're talking about Jason Kenney, and the question at that time was, would he be able to to remain in the Premier's office, under fire on all fronts. Uh, but at the time, he was resolute and he was going to hang in, right? I mean, that's where we were in January. Absolutely. You know, as I was thinking about this interview, I was imagining a year ago, if someone had predicted where we are right now, we would have thought that they really <laughs> had a wild imagination. <laughs> It's so true. I mean, it has been all all years in Alberta politics are wild. This one, I think, more so than most. Um, the leadership review was moved up because, remember, that was supposed to be happening in the fall of 2022. But he he conceded and said, OK, OK, I see the writing on the wall here. Let's do it in, in the spring of 2022. Um, and that proved right. to be his demise. Right. That was the breaking point. Absolutely. And, you know, if we think back, he didn't say May. It was going to be in April. It was going to be in Red Deer in person. Um, and so even that took a peculiar twist as there was huge pressure on, uh, uh, you know, on that uh, process, too many people to physically be accommodated in Red Deer and Probably not a, a good outcome for uh, Jason Kenney. And so the party switched from that April date uh, to the May date, um, letting people uh, vote by mail. Right, exactly. Which, again, was another controversial issue in terms of how that was going to shape. Oh, I mean, it's been controversy from day one. But what, what it comes down to, I guess, and where what got us to that point was the fact that he came to Alberta. He united the conservative movements in the province under the one-party banner, and we were back to being perfectly divided again following the May 18th vote. Exactly. He he brought together the two parties, but it seems in retrospect that he failed to truly unite them. And if we think about, you know, that 51% win that he had and then Daniel Smith winning with, I think it was 53 or 54%, yeah. again, that really does speak to a party that 
has been profoundly divided, um, you know, through much of the last couple of years. And when we look back at Jason Kenney and the fact, you know, that he's he's no longer premier, was that was that the overarching um, downfall uh, of Premier Jason Kenney? Just the fact that holding those two factions together proved to be too much. You know. <sighs> Holding those two factions together, I think, was a a really challenging task for anyone. And I I think there were a couple of things. The the first is that Jason Kenney has many, you know, many political talents, I, I think it's fair to say. But he perhaps wasn't the best suited personality to holding these these two uh, sort of streams in the party together. Um, the things that have come out about his lack of consultation with caucus, not talking to people in caucus, you know, it it does make you wonder if things could have been different with a different personality and style in that leadership role. So that's one thing. But then the other thing I think we have to acknowledge is that COVID was an extraordinary stress test for, you know, all premiers across the country, but certainly for a party that is divided in the way that the UCP is divided and became so profoundly divided over how to uh, address the COVID pandemic. I think you make such a good point. I mean, obviously, he he wasn't the only premier to try and deal with the pandemic. All of our leaders did. But I don't think we can deny the fact that Alberta is unique in that regard, I mean, there was resistance to um, public health measures everywhere, but I think there was more and more uh, vocal and stronger opposition to them in Alberta, right? I mean, we have to be a little bit fair to Jason Kenney on that front. Absolutely. I think, you know, if we look at all of the provincial premiers, he was dealt probably the most challenging deck of cards or hand of cards in the sense that public opinion in Alberta was more divided. Um, he, he tried to find a, a middle ground in that and, you know, was very lonely in that spot because he, he wasn't part of one poll or the other poll. And, so much of his caucus was on one side of of yeah. this issue and an issue you know and and wanted him to pursue a set of policies that i don't think he realistically could could follow and you know i think as he's looked back he has come to the conclusion which i think is correct that he might still be premier if he had been stricter with yep. his caucus if he had just said look this is what we're doing toe the line or get out it would have meant that a, a, you know another party would have formed i think and would be challenging him in this election but he'd still be premier I mean, you're a political scientist. You know full well that when you, I mean, it's an old saying in politics. When you try and please everyone, you end up pleasing no one, and then you end up out of office. That's that's typically how it works, right? You can't be all things to all people. Well, yeah, I, I'm not even sure that that was the case. It, you know, in um, public opinion is seldom as polarized or divided on an issue as public opinion in Alberta was over COVID. There were very few people who wanted a moderate middle policy. People wanted fewer restrictions, no vaccine mandates, or they wanted 
more restrictions at various times and stronger action and faster action. And, and so Kenny found himself, you know, in this sort of empty center in, in some ways. And, you know, I think that there were some, some tactical errors there as well, you know, he he would postpone acting and that would make the situation worse. But I, I do think that, you know, if you look back, if he had chosen one side or another, he might have been better off. It's really hard to say. Yeah. Regardless, we know how it played out and he's no longer the premier. Now, Danielle Smith had talked about possibly entering the race uh, in late 2021 and, of course, was all in as we got into the summer. But when do you, th- I mean, when all of this started and Kenny left and the leadership race started, Danielle Smith was not considered a serious contender by most people. Is that fair? I mean, we didn't think that she'd end up being premier. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I think I, I said to you or, or to uh some some uh, host that uh, I thought she was in the race really to to stage a comeback into politics, right? Yeah. right? You know, she she may you know she would be able to run as an MLA. Maybe she'd be in the cabinet if her party won. But before the the race really launched, I don't think many people saw her as a leading contender. I, I think that the expectation was that that wild rose side of the party would probably flock to Brian Jean, right. which didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and, and of course, uh, we know what's happened since. Can, I, can, can you hang on for a second, Dr. Young? We'll take a sure quick can. break and come back. Okay. We'll take a quick break. We're chatting with Dr. Lisa Young, a professor of political science at the University of Calgary. More right after this. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. We're chatting with Dr. Lisa Young, who is a professor of political science at the University of Calgary, just going through the year that was, 2022. Uh, Dr. Young, thanks for holding on. I appreciate it. No Um, problem. So we've gone through Jason Kenney and then the start of this leadership campaign where I think we all saw, you know, Danielle Smith as, as, as sure she, she was, I mean, not going to say she was a, a candidate that didn't have a chance, but I don't think any of us thought she'd end up winning. But from the very get go of that campaign, unlike most campaigns I can remember covering, she dominated all of this discussion from day one and never relented. That is absolutely fair. And, you know, I think we skipped over an important political event in in the year that helps to explain how she was so dominant. And that's the Freedom Convoy. Um, You know, there was this mobilization of people who were angry about vaccination mandates. They were angry about what the government had done around uh, COVID. 
And I think that was the first base of support for Danielle Smith. That helped her launch this campaign. Um, and then she came along with her ideas about the Sovereignty Act, which brought in uh, another sort of group of uh, supporters to her. Um, and, and I think the combination of those two things really helped her, first of all, mount a, a stronger campaign than she would be able to. It was lots of people she could sign up to be members. Um, but also the, this idea of the Sovereignty Act was so far outside the the mainstream of the conversation that all of the other leadership candidates, with the exception of Todd Lowen, ended up responding yeah. to it. And and that made her this central figure in the debate. And, and, and it just and it stayed that way. It didn't go away. Uh, it carried her to the leadership win, of course. But that again, when we talk about a divided party, that was far from overwhelming. It went to the final ballot and she won a slim majority. So still the division exists. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's been fascinating to watch the party unite behind her under those circumstances. And, you know, I I think she gets some credit for this. I think she, you know, her personal style is is quite different from Jason Kenney's and and she's been quite deliberate about these efforts. Uh, I think also, you know, there's, there's nothing that brings a group project together like a looming deadline. And the prospect of the election in May has been sobering, I think, for the party. They know that if they continue their internal disputes um, that they're they're going to lose the election certainly so there's been sort of a sense of okay you know we we lost the the argument in the leadership we're going to have to swallow all of our concerns about the sovereignty act and about daniel smith's judgment and act like a united party at least for the next six months. <laughs> You're right. I mean, who knows? Who knows what happens after that? But um, going forward, uh, like you say, they, I think the recognition, and, and we've spoken to a number. Of, I'm sure you have. I know I have. Who people, you know, behind the scenes within the party that say, "Listen, we, we've got to be able to just at least put on the unified front going forward," uh, like you say, to get elected. Uh, after she became premier, all of the sniping about the Sovereignty Act went away. I noticed some of them didn't show up for the vote. They maybe just decided they'd sit that one out, but it passed, and nobody within the party is is sniping from the sidelines about it. It hasn't gone smoothly, though. Uh, how much uh, has she hurt herself with the rather, you know, even as she has said, uh, chaotic start with clarifications after announcements over and over and all these sorts of things. There's questions about what's going on. Who's driving the bus over there? Yeah, I, I think, you know, for those of us who follow this closely, um, it, it hasn't looked like a smooth transition. It, it hasn't looked like she's ready to govern. Um, you know, rollouts of legislation have, you know, her, her signature legislation were highly problematic. I'm not sure that all the voters are paying attention to, you know, this, yeah. you know, we sometimes think of it as inside baseball. Right. But I do think that voters have been looking, you know, who is Danielle Smith is the question, right? Is is, is Danielle Smith the, the person who was running for the UCP leadership? 
Is she the person who thinks that the unvaccinated or the group who've experienced the worst con- uh, discrimination? Is she the person who thinks that if you live a, you know, that you can prevent yourself from getting cancer? You know, is that the real Danielle Smith or is the premier who is feeling people's pain through inflation, who's making sure that money is coming out for affordability, who, you know, says that she wants to govern for all Alberta. Is that the real person? And, you know, I think voters are trying to figure out, you know, if they reelect Daniel Smith, which one of those premiers do they get? What about on the other side, for all the issues that we've talked about with the UCP, the infighting, the chaos, all the rest of it, they're ahead in the latest polling. Notley's NDP is still lagging behind, albeit it's, you know, probably within the margin of error. Um, but they had a pretty commanding lead at some time. I mean, it seems like it could be up in the air depending on who goes where in Calgary primarily. But uh, have the NDP squandered an opportunity here? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think we should talk a little bit about those polls. I'm having a lot of trouble making sense of the polling that we're seeing. I mean, you're, you're right that, you know, we've seen two or three polls in the past week that show the UCP and the NDP roughly neck and neck, right? They're within, they're within the margin of error, yeah. right? Um, but then we see um, uh, the, the NDP ahead in Calgary in some polls by, you know, a couple of points. So, you know, neck and neck, really. Uh, others by 10 points or more. So a commanding lead in Calgary. So that's a bit of a head scratcher. And then the other piece is that um, when, when we see ratings of the two party leaders, we see that uh, ratings of Rachel Notley are much more favorable than ratings of Danielle Smith. So Danielle Smith is kind of a, a drag on her party's support. So it's really, you know, it's a bit puzzling to see what the big picture of all of this is. Right. Um, so I, I, I really, you know, I mean, if we've learned anything this year, it's that we shouldn't make predictions. Right. Yeah. But it's really hard to see who's, you know, who, who's got the advantage going into uh, the 2023 election. But I do think, you know, there, there's lots of, of criticism of the NDP's ability to make the most of this situation sure. and you know there there's criticism that they haven't been able to focus their their critique that they're sort of always chasing the you know the issue of the day um that they are talking more about you know how how terrible Daniel Smith is instead of talking about how they are ready to govern in in a stable sort of way. So I do think it's going to be really critical for them over the next six months to think about streamlining their messaging and and getting a really solid message out uh, to voters about who they are and what they would do if they were elected. You know, there's, there's this when you talk to campaign strategists, they always say that, um, You've got during an election, you need to audition for the role that you want. So if you are very critical, you're auditioning to be leader of the opposition. If if you act like a premier, well, then you're auditioning to be premier. And I think that's something that's got to be top of mind for the NDP. 
And regardless, uh, there'll be a bunch for you and I to talk about. We know that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a safe prediction. <laughs> exactly. Next year will be uh, probably just as exciting as this year. We really appreciate your insight as we go along and look forward to doing this again in 2023, Dr. Young. My pleasure. Thanks so much. That's Dr. Lisa Young, who is a professor of political science at the University of Calgary. And I think she's right. The NDP need to be careful. They had a, they were in a pretty good position here, but much of that lead, according to the polling, and like Dr. Young says, it's tough because it's all going to come down to Calgary by the looks of it. Uh, it seems like most people are saying Edmonton's a foregone conclusion. That's going NDP. Rural's a foregone conclusion. That's going UCP. The battleground will be Calgary, and it looks like it's, you know, it's going to be close. So, so we'll see where it goes. But uh, I think there is pressure on the NDP to become something more than the opposition critic, to put something forward. I'm hearing that from you a lot. Uh, and I think I've noticed a bit of a change in the NDP in terms of uh, if you check uh, the tweets, and that's how we do things these days, we're ready to govern has been a message we're hearing a lot. Are they? We'll find out. Come May. We're spending much of today taking a look back at the year 2022. And uh, one of the stories that has dominated the headlines, going back far beyond that, um, is healthcare. And as I said, healthcare is back in the forefront right now. Um, Canadian premiers expected to address the situation that they're facing in hospitals right across the country today, uh, primarily around children's hospitals at this point, but there's fear that it's going to end up moving into other areas as well. It's on the minds of everybody. Um, and we know it's been an issue in our province too. So let's find out what the year's been like. I mean, has there been any relief at all? We're going to chat with Dr. Shazma Mithani, who is an emergency room physician at the Royal Alec and the Stollery Children's Hospitals in Edmonton. She's joined us many times over this year to talk about what's going on in healthcare. Uh, Dr. Mathani, thank you so much for coming back. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me this morning. You know, when we go back to the start of the year, I was trying to remember what January was like. I mean, it was chaotic, but relatively speaking, would, was that a bit of a lull? Like, I imagine it was still, you know, all hands on deck and it was really, really busy. But was it a little bit less crisis level as it is right now? Um, so I had to actually, like, go back at my, the way that I had to remember the year in preparation for today was to go back to my tweet. Like at that yeah. time, because it's so hard to remember what happened. There's been so like much. 11 months ago, right? <laughs> There's been so much going on. And so um, in my mind, I feel like it wasn't as bad. But then when I go and look back at what was going on then, um, it's probably things that we've all forgotten. So we were like right in the thick of wave five of COVID in January. Um, going back at my to my tweets, I realized that we had actually had an extended winter break at that point. Um, to get like tests and masks in schools like it's like all these things that I like don't even remember <laughs> happened were happening at that time and we you know there was a statement by um, the AHSCO at the time Dr. Verna Yu where she was talking about how like yes COVID isn't as bad in the ice in the ICU but what we're seeing is like a non-ICU surge um, and so there, there was we were talking about field hospitals at that time again like there are all these things yeah. that I had completely forgotten about um, because it feels like so much has happened in this in this last 12 months. And so, yeah, at the beginning of the year, we were like still right in the thick of wave five of COVID. We were over capacity and like looking for surge capacity at that time. Um, and so I guess even though it feels like how in terms of how bad things are now that in my mind, it feels like earlier in the year was a break. It doesn't really sound like it going back and 
looking at what I was tweeting about at that time. Has there been a break, Doc? I mean, we, I know we've talked throughout the year as things have gone up and down. Has there, I mean, when was the last time you actually felt like, hey, this is a relatively normal day in the ER? Has it happened in the last year, two years, three years? Definitely not in the last year. Um, like 100% not in the last year. There has been constant pressure, whether it's from COVID or the opioid crisis or now this, you know, triple-demic in the pediatric population that we're seeing. Um no, certainly not in this last year. We've had ongoing pressure. And I know that you and I talked, um, it was either in the early fall or in the summer, and we talked about how like the summer actually typically is a break normally, right? Under normal circumstances, let's say like pre-pandemic, the summer is typically a time where things slow down. People tend to, you know, um, travel, leave, leave the city, leave the province, and we typically see a bit of a lull in terms yeah. of the medical presentation to the acute care system. We did not see that this summer. Um, that's close enough that I remember it, uh, where we didn't see that break that everybody was hoping for and looking for uh, in the healthcare worker workforce and in the, in the hospital system. And so it really truly has been this, this constant pressure uh, throughout the year of kind of one thing after the next with this overlying um, constant push of just patients being generally sicker. And, and these are kind of the patients that continue to present to the emergency department. I, I was wondering, you know, when I was thinking about what I'd like to ask you in terms of, okay, and we, we now know we've got the, the, the tridemic or whatever, however they're, whatever they're calling it, where we've got the RSV, the COVID and the flu sort of just ravaging things right now, especially when it comes to children's hospitals. And I wonder for somebody who's on the front lines working and saying, okay, we're maxed, we're stressed, and we can see this coming. It's day by day. We've seen this before. This is getting bad. This, what's that feeling like where you're sitting there saying, okay, we're flat out and we know we're not even halfway to where we're going to be. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's, it almost, you almost feel desensitized to it now. Like speaking for myself, it almost feels like I'm desensitized to it because it's always been like this for so long. We as healthcare workers have been, you know, trying to raise the alarm on this for like innumerable months and years, if we're being honest. And it always just seems like there's something else that's coming. And all of these things, as you alluded to, are things that we could see coming, that we have seen coming and that have been predictable, right? Every wave of COVID has been predictable. This tridemic has been predictable. Like we, the infectious disease specialists were predicting that this was going to happen in the context of what we were seeing, you know, from our neighbors down south in Australia, because it's very predictive of what we see here in the Northern Hemisphere. So, I mean, we've just been trying to like brace ourselves. And honestly, it it just feels like, putting our heads down and trying to get through it and just hoping that things that we can hold it together, that the system can hold it together until we get past this current crisis and wait for the next crisis, whatever that's going to be. When we talk about these crises and it's just been one after the other, I mean, are they avoidable? Because I I, I take a look, I mean, I even saw a story from the UK this week talking about it could have been written about Alberta. I mean, it seems like a lot of these problems that we're dealing with here, they're dealing with in Ontario, they're dealing with in the U.S., they're dealing with in the U.K. It seems like a lot of the Western world is is going through the same thing right now. If, if you had to sit down and speak to a world leader or somebody with the power to fix this, what would you say you need right now? How can it be fixed, doctor? Well, I think fixing it right now is the big million dollar question but i think the better question is what could have been done to prevent this from happening i think that there could have been things done to prevent this from happening i mean um if i were sitting down with any leader a world leader like the you know leader of a nation or a province i would tell them that we know that um 
you know, all of these protections that have been dropped are going to lead to a severe respiratory season. We know this. So mm-hmm. consider adding these protections back, things like masking, ventilation, filtration. But even more importantly than that, um, because that seems to be a controversial topic that leaders don't really want to, to approach, talk about vaccination. Like, get ahead. We could have gotten ahead of this. I mean, the current vaccination rate in Alberta for influenza is like under 30%, I, yeah, which is really... Really disappointing. And even worse right? for kids. I think it's about one in five for kids. Yes, exactly. And and what we know right now is that the the virus that's causing the most um, pressure in the acute care system and in the community is actually it's influenza. It's influenza A, and we have a vaccine for that. And this vaccine has been available since October, and there was no public health campaign or no prominent public health campaign to push people, to educate people in terms of the importance of knowing that this is what was coming and that this is how we can protect ourselves. In pediatric patients in particular, like all of almost all of the severe outcomes that we're seeing are in patients who are unvaccinated for influenza, who are getting admitted yeah. uh, with these diseases, who are getting admitted with complications of, of influenza. And so really, if I, if I could have talked to someone three or four months ago and, and knew that they were going to listen, that's what I would tell them to, you know, Go back to the basics of public health and preventative medicine, because that could have had a significant impact on reducing the amount of stress and pressure that we're seeing right now. And and you've started up a great campaign on that. Do you have time to hang on for just a couple of minutes, then we'll come back and talk about what you launched this year? Okay, great. We're chatting with Dr. Shazma Bethany, who is an ER doc um, at the... uh, Royal Alec in Edmonton and the Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton. And she's, you know, she's talking about public health and, and education, those sorts of things. She's taking it upon herself. She's not just talking about it. We'll tell you about a project that she launched when we come back right after this. We're chatting with Dr. Shazma Mathani, an ER doc at the Royal Alec and the Stollery Children's Hospital, and we've been talking about the year in healthcare and what it was. And I, um, I, I want to talk to her about this. Really, uh, she talked about her social media. She sort of started a campaign this year that I think is so so valuable. Um, Dr. Mathani, I just wonder, was it was it born out of frustration? Was it uh, why did you decide that you know what? Uh, maybe I'll take a, a social media campaign where I can try and provide a little public health education to to my followers. Yeah, it, um, so it was kind of a pivot away from uh, COVID information, right? Because yeah, the way yeah. that I've gained this uh, following on social media over the last couple of years is just, uh, I hope, being a trusted source of information for COVID. And it became apparent to me uh, a couple of things. One, that um, more and more people were getting their health information, their general health information from social media. And that uh, although COVID isn't over, uh, people were were sick of hearing about it and so I thought well how can I kind of engage with this captive audience to still get important health information out there and so I decided to kind of pivot uh, not completely away from COVID because it's certainly something that shows up in my videos and in my um, other posts on social media but just in terms of like pivoting to what I'm seeing in the emergency department and um, seeing the the growing and, and constant pressure of patients in the emergency department I wanted to be able to get some information out there to educate people on common things that I was seeing with the hope that uh, these could be things that could be managed at home and hopefully um, keep people out of the ER and save uh, everybody um, time and effort and, and kind of help educate people on what can be seen in the emerge or what should be seen versus what can be seen in the community by people's family, doctors and pediatricians. And so it kind of was born out of that. Um, and it's, 
taken off definitely more than I was expecting and very pleasantly surprised with, with the with the engagement that I've had on it. And like you say, I mean, it's a lot of the things that, I mean, my kids are older now, but I remember when we were raising the little ones, it's more, it's more questions than anything else. I mean, you don't know and you're not sure and you get worried and you get nervous. And I think is that sort of, Hey, I, I can help you with some of these things. Cause I see them all day, every day. I can give you some of the answers before you even ask the question. Is it that simple? That's exactly it. I mean, there are so many things. And lately, the focus has definitely been on the pediatric population, but there are things that are relevant to adults, too. Even like one of my first videos was um, stopping a nosebleed effectively. And that is something that we see in all all ages, so commonly in the emerge in terms of like, is this something that's really bad? What could be causing this? How do I stop it? Right. So answering and addressing all those questions, like you mentioned, Shay, um, what my had I had a video on cough and post viral cough and how it tends to linger on, and that's a very common question that I see in adults and pediatrics in terms of whether a lingering cough means that it's pneumonia, and like all these questions kind of addressed um, in these videos. And yeah, so the idea is definitely to preemptively answer the concerns and the questions of um, the general population to help be able to keep them at home where it's definitely more comfortable for everybody. And that's so important. Like when you take a look right now, we know that the ERs are just, I mean, you're looking at a wait. If you're taking a kid in who's not, you know, urgently ill, you're probably going to have to wait a good chunk of time. So, I mean, it's, it's sort of preemptive. Hey, here's some of the things that maybe you can handle at home. You don't have to get yourself into that mess. Exactly. Exactly. That's, you know, it, nobody likes waiting. Um, we as healthcare providers hate for people to have to wait as long as they do. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's the state of the current system right now. And so if, if these videos can help reassure people, um, and give them the education and, and, and tools that they need to be able to stay home, then, um, you know, it's making a positive impact. Um, I know we're not at the peak. We're, we're not. We haven't maxed out with this current uh, tridemic or whatever it's being called. Um, what what's on the horizon? I mean, how frustrating is it to know that it just seems like there's one crisis around the corner after the last one? I mean, what's what's your looking forward? What's your hope? What's your expectation, doctor? You know, I hope that decision makers can just finally learn from what is happening. Um, these are crises all of the ones that have happened in this last year are ones that could have been not necessarily completely avoided, but certainly mitigated in in a significant fashion. And it it feels as though um, there are all these lessons to be learned and none of them are being learned and being actioned. And so my hope and expectation from our elected officials um, are, is that we start to actually learn from these things. I mean, focus on the importance of vaccinations, focus on the importance of um, what we call MPIs, non-pharmacologic inter- interventions, so protection measures, right? Focus on these things that we know are going to be helpful. And then really in terms of a system-wide um, view, focus on primary and preventative care. I mean, things like new hospitals and ICUs are very sexy plans that, that all elected officials like to be able to announce, but that's not actually what we need. That's very expensive care. Um, what we need to really focus on is keeping people out of the acute care system and getting everybody a family doctor, a pediatrician, focusing on public and preventative health um, with vaccines and really just shifting the mindset um, to focus on keeping people generally healthy and keeping them out of the acute care system um, to, to be able to preserve it for, for generations to come. 
Yeah, and, and that's what we all need and what we all want. Um, Dr. Metheny, I know you're incredibly busy going through all of this stuff, and, and I really appreciate you joining us as often as you do and giving us sort of a behind-the-scenes look at what's going on in our healthcare system. Thank you so much. doing year-enders, year-end reviews, we're going to talk about energy uh, and think about the year that it's been in energy. And like everything else, it's been it's been chaotic, right? I mean, I don't know if there's anything we can talk about really that hasn't been just wild uh, for the past few years, uh, energy included. Uh, in January, if you take a look at where we were when it comes to the price of oil, we were at, yeah, about $85 a barrel, okay? Uh, a month later, end of February, Russia invades Ukraine. And a month after the invasion, the price of oil has gone up to over $120 a barrel. And, and that's meant all kinds of implications for, especially us here in Alberta. It's meant really, really good things for the province, reversing a deficit position into a massive surplus. It's also meant, you know, that we're paying more to heat our homes, drive our cars, all the rest of those things. It's the way it works. Um, so let's get a breakdown on 2022 in energy with Dave Yeager. Dave's joined us many times. He, of course, is an energy policy analyst and oil and gas writer, author of from Miracle to Menace, Alberta, a Carbon Story. Dave, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time, as always, sir. Uh, good morning. Hey, before we get into the year in review, we we know that, uh, you know, things happen all the time that can change the forecast. And uh, Keystone appears to have sprung a leak yesterday and yeah. has been shut down. What might that mean for the price of oil and for Alberta in particular? Well, that's going to back it up till they repair it. I mean, it carries uh, it's a big pipeline carrying several hundred thousand barrels a day, and until such a time that oil's going to have to go into storage, so it really depends. Well, the question is, is, is does it back all the way up to the wellhead or the oil sands plant? You know, what is the level of storage in the, in the major terminals like Hardesty? So this is temporary, and they'll get it running again. But no, this is uh, causes um, a price to go up on one side of the pipeline, and of course, when you get restricted takeaway capacity on this side on this side of the leak, it makes it go down. But for the for about the time it's been shut in, I haven't seen any material changes in prices today. Again, it's oil will go into storage for a period of time, but if storage fills up and the pipeline isn't working again, yeah, we'll have some uh, really material in decreases in oil prices okay. here. Something yeah. to watch. Um- 2022, when it comes to energy, is it that spike that I was talking about, that surge that we saw into uh, March of 2022 where the price of oil went up about 50%? That's the big story, right? No, 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 actually, no. I think I'd like to take the spaceship or take the go up to 30,000 feet and look at look at all the factors that affect oil in Alberta. And it was a great year. I mean, the the price is average price will be the highest it's been since 2014. The unsung uh, hero is the price of natural gas. You know, before 2008, it was routinely 10 bucks. In 2019, it was like 55 cents. Price of gas is averaged. I mean, gas used to pay the rent in the, in Alberta yeah, for years. Yeah. It's averaging a way higher price. But I think another, uh, some of the great advancements in 22 are less subtle. I haven't seen any really famous people going to find them, uh, Fort McMurray to protest the oil sands <laughs> recently. True, have, true. You know, have you noticed that? No, have you noticed that for, you know, for wherever Alberta was a persona non grata and in the Europe and there was protests here and then protests there. And, and that, it, it kind of, you know, part of it's been a great job by the producers to, to show their social responsibility and agree to cut emissions. But all of a sudden they've realized because of geopolitical events, well, you know, maybe having four million barrels a day or whatever it is coming out of the middle of North America that's got nothing to do with the war 
in Ukraine or all the geopolitical drama. That, that's a really comforting or relaxing thing that, that's gone away. Because I, I think sometimes you forget. I think it's human nature. You remember the good things and forget the bad things. But if you look at all the baloney that Alberta has been put through, um, you know, in the past, even going back to 2008, when gas prices started sliding as that market was rebuilt, the tar sands came, campaign began. Perhaps the reason there's no pipeline protest because, because, uh, we're not trying to build any new ones, perhaps, but there's, uh, the pipeline, uh, the LNG soldiers on in the sense that in a year or two, we're going to be able to take 10% out of the gas out of the basin. That's a game changer. That went, that went through the year with, except for the, the vandalism in February, which is apparently part of the, being in the 21st century, that went pretty good. And they, they, apparently, they're going to finish Trans Mountain one way or the other. We don't know when. We don't know how much. So you, you look at all those factors. You look at um, at the at the resource, the food and fuel. You know, Alberta. It's back to the basics in the world economy because of the correction in the economy. So I I think if you if you look at everything. Uh, there, you know, there's tremendous volatility that seems to come with the territory. But I, I think 22 is just a just a fantastic year, and and all the changes that that have come in. I mean, even the, even Ottawa said went uh, in March. Even the federal government that um, went to Europe in in March and said, "Well, don't worry, we can get you more oil." Right? You know, we can get you to yeah. I mean, when's the last time you heard that? <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, really? No, so, they wouldn't so, sign so, on to know, the COP agreement at the end of the last COP meeting. They, they they wouldn't sign on to that because they were worried about what it might do. So you're well, right. yeah, but I mean. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the change in tone. In fact, the whole world has changed its tone that fossil fuels are valuable again. Security of supply is important again. Things that, you know, things that we claim we could live without. We didn't need oil. We didn't need gas. We didn't need coal. You know, we could, and, and so that is the biggest change. And it's, it's gained momentum over the course of the year. And I think it really sets the stage up that, that you know, 2023 and beyond, it's just going to be way, way different, way better for Alberta in, really? ways, in, in ways I don't think people appreciate. Uh, that, that's really encouraging to hear you say that. I mean, I, I'm with you 100%, and I've talked many, many times on the air about the fact that I think we get out in front of ourselves here, and we have these great aspirational goals, but we sort of overlook the reality down here on Earth, uh, and we got we got that snap back into perspective for us over the course of 2022. But I don't have the faith in the leadership that you do to say, uh, okay, well, let's be a little more realistic going forward, I think they'll run right back into their aspiration and their ambition and we'll be right where we were before. You know, the the, the period of time in which the energy transition was uh, was invented uh, is it was a situation that'll never be duplicated again. And I'm thinking of the last part of the last decade, say 2015 to 20, till COVID in 2020. Now, oil price had collapsed, so energy was cheap, it was everywhere. Gas prices had collapsed. Interest rates were at, were really low. Inflation rates were at really low. And, and so the world relaxed, you know, the, 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 the real issues of what, of the supply chains and security of supply, everything was taken for granted. So we got this, woke up one day and said, well, well, yeah, well there's no problem. We can replace diesel fuel with solar panels. Like, I mean, there was a bit right. of, yeah. uh, there was a bit of insanity to the whole thing. And so people are really shocked back in reality. A lot of voters didn't pay attention, you know, the urban voters in the major centers like Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver. Somebody said, well, we should get out of the oil business. They didn't know. They didn't care. You know, we should tax fertilizer. I mean, who cares? But now everybody cares. And it's, it's almost like your smartphone has been replaced with your wallet. Like you used to get all the news on the smartphone. You just read what you wanted. 
But now, now it's a, it's a whole different area. The, the cost of everything's going up, and, yeah. and people are going to start asking why. Why is that going up? What is that? Why why is my power bill going up? Why 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 are my food bills going up? So that so I, I think a, a lot of a lot of Canadians and a lot of people in the Western world. And we're pre-COVID. We're asleep at the switch, you know. And the people with a with a with a crusade got to carry the day. You know that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, let's do this. Let's block that. And now it's all it's all different. So I think I don't think that the the series of events um, or the the macroeconomic circumstances that created a lot of the stuff that's been painful in Alberta don't exist anymore. And I don't see them coming back anytime soon. So I think there's a bigger change of foot. And I, I think it's going to be reflected at the ballot box. Now I say that all the time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that uh, that I don't think the liberal that I think you know if there was an election held tomorrow, uh, would would Trudeau win again? Everybody says, well, you know, of course. And the, I don't know. I, I think it's because this is hitting other places like downtown Toronto way worse than us. I mean, if, if there's if there's a correction in real estate, it's going to be the most severe where the most houses are right where the most people sure. live yeah exactly yeah, so for sure. alberta yeah so the alberta is great i mean we well, if you're in the oil industry and the agriculture industry and you need workers well you because your your business is going up you've got the cash flow to pay them but if you're in if you're if your economy is based on say after tax recreational dollars you know if you're in tourism hotels and restaurants that's a lot tougher you know so i i, I don't i don't think all the advantages of being in primary resources that were taken for granted before. I don't think the the great the, the beauty of, of being of the back to the basics, if you will, and commodities that you can't live without. I think that's a lot more powerful influence uh, for Alberta, a positive for Alberta, and I think it's going to change uh, voting behavior in the future. So you see good things on the horizon for 2023. Then you think we're heading in a better direction than we have been. Oh, absolutely. It's I mean, if you put up all the things that we've had to put up with in Alberta. And in the past uh, 10 years, going back to pipeline protests and crusades and, you know, really rich and famous people with carbon footprints, we can only imagine telling us how to live our lives. That's all gone. I mean, that alone, not having to listen to Jane Fonda and Neil Young telling us what to do. I mean, <laughs> James Cameron, I mean, you know, that's fantastic. <laughs> Just go back to whatever you're doing. We'll leave, we'll probably, you leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. So, I mean, what happens if, if the Russia situation gets resolved early in the new year, oil's flowing out of Russia again, everything's handled there, do we not return to what we were thinking before? I mean, when you take a player like Russia out of the mix the way that we have, or at least reduced it drastically, I mean, it, it resets everything. I, I, I guess maybe I'm just being really skeptical that we just go back to the way we were. I uh, nobody really wants to think that if things could be getting better, it's one of our default behaviors. <laughs> but if you look at the investment in new oil supplies around the world, there's just not a lot of oil. What what you're seeing in the price today is not excess supply. You're seeing demand destruction caused by high prices and the recession. And so there's a number in there. It may not be 120, but it's certainly not going to be where we were at 50. And so this is a very tenuous situation. And low prices we see today, uh, there's nobody to really figure out the oil markets right now. Nope. Remember, the, the United States uh, Strategic Petroleum Reserve has been competing with its own producers at a million barrels a day. They're running out of oil. They can't do that forever. Um, the, 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 uh, the, new, the investment in new supplies all over the world is way behind. Even the International Energy Agency, when they're not telling us that we should buy solar panels and wind turbines, is is worried that that the amount of investment that's going to be required globally 
to to sustain production because there's something called depletion, which people don't talk about very much, but it's about 5%. Every oil field in the world, except the oil sands, which has got infinite resources, declines by about 5% a year. So you got to go out and, and put on 5 million barrels a day or, or 4 million barrels a day in new production just to, just to tread water. So we're way behind on that. The supply chains for the oil service, uh, the Permian Basin, look at that. They said, well, prices are higher. Well, why aren't they, you know, going crazy in the States and drilling again in the Permian Basin? Well, they got real supply chain issues with labor yeah. and, and service costs. And, and so it's, uh, it, it, the, the, there's a, a natural gas. Don't forget gas. Everybody forgets gas. Gas is huge. And uh, that's going to be a permanent new floor under the gas price. Uh, once we get LNG Canada going, and it's looking at a second train, which will double output, it'll take some time. But boy, oh boy, the gas business has paid the freight in Alberta going back to Medicine Hat when, oh, they, yeah. when they were drilling for water with the railroad. You know, I mean, it's great stuff. We get tons of it. So uh, yeah, there's you know we're still living with some political hangover with some policies that people in Alberta object to out of the federal government, but they're moderating their tone and and they're having to be pragmatic because um, they're realizing that uh, uh, I think the tone in Ottawa is actually vastly improved as you as you pointed out yeah. at COP27 and yeah. you know they what they could not agree to anymore they've got responsibilities with G7 G20 and NATO that uh, that <laughs> probably got more influence Europe probably got more influence on what they do in Ottawa and Alberta has, that's for sure. Uh, Dave, yeah, I mean, hey, good, nice positive outlook. I, I like that. I like it a lot. I wish we had a little more time, but we don't, so we got to leave it here, but I appreciate <laughs> yeah. you being here. Thanks for listening today. If you hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.